The text that we consider this evening is Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. And we'll reread that section again, Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had in handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And then in verses 15 and 16, we read of the birth of Ishmael. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we find in Genesis 16 is somewhat unexpected, or at least we would not expect it, considering what we saw in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, you recall, God gave Abram the promise of a great and mighty seed, as many as the stars in the sky, and Abram believed God. And later, God confirmed his covenant and confirmed all of his promises to Abram in a most powerful way by passing alone between the the pieces of the animals, confirming all of his promises, sealing them. But now, chapter 16, we have a great contrast. And we do not find now Abram and Sarai trusting and waiting upon the Lord. But we find Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hand and trying to realize God's promise themselves. Now, this is not the first time that we've come across a contrast as regards Father Abraham. Remember also when Abram fought by faith against the kings of Mesopotamia and took out who knows how many men and took out four kings by a Gideon's band. Tremendous act of faith, that. He fought by faith, fearlessly. But you remember also when Abram had gone down into Egypt in times past, how he was afraid of the face of men, the face of the Egyptians, and he lied about his wife so as to save his own skin. So there's another contrast between Abram uh, believing and Abram trusting in God and Abram being weak in faith and instead of waiting upon the Lord, trying to do things himself, as he does here in chapter 16. The truth that we learn from these contrasts is that the Bible does not hide the sins, the weaknesses, the failures of the saints of the Old and New Testament. The Bible does not paint an imaginary picture of the Christian. The Bible does not paint an imaginary picture of the believer. 
but it presents believers, uh, spots and warts and all, including these weaknesses that we find in a chapter like Genesis chapter 16. That's, in, that's with the case of Abram. That's, with the case, that's in the case of many other saints. Jacob, for example. Even Moses. We learn of Moses' failure at the rock when he smote the rock. Think of Jesus' disciples. Think about every king that Judah ever had. You won't find one perfect saint in the Bible other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in that respect, the Bible resonates with us. The Bible was not written for perfect Christians. The Bible was not written for perfect believers. You can't find one on earth. But the Bible was written for sinners, uh, believing sinners, such as we are. And the weaknesses that we experience and that we see in sacred scripture is somewhat of a consolation to us. It resonates with us. We realize that we're right there with Abram, not always trusting and waiting upon the Lord as we ought but frequently relying upon ourselves, frequently getting ourselves into a mess because of our weakness of faith. And so that's really what Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 6 presents to us. Instead of trusting in the Lord, trusting in self, relying upon the arm of flesh, and producing a a big mess. But already in Genesis 16, we see God's grace shine with the visitation by the angel of the Lord, which we will not consider in this sermon. But we also learn some deep truths in this history of Abram in the first six verses. There there is many a practical lesson here, but there are also deep truths that are described for us in this Old Testament history. The deep truth of what God's way is over and against man's way. Truths regarding faith and grace and glory and salvation and Christ, all contained in this handful of verses, Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. And so let's consider this text under the theme, a carnal try to realize the promise, or a carnal attempt to realize the promise. Or you could say, leaning upon an arm of flesh in order to try to realize God's promise. Noticing in the first place the plan that Sarai concocts here to which Abram agrees and in which he is complicit. Noticing in the second place the result of the plan and its execution. Noticing in the third place the lesson, a great lesson that God teaches us by this history. The occasion for Sarai's plan is given for us in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. You remember that God had promised to Abram and to Sarai a seed. Not just any seed, but the seed of promise. The seed on which all of God's promises depended upon which they hinged. Abram and Sarai must have a seed. And they were very conscious of that. And as the years went by and as the months ticked away, it began to press on them more and more. We don't have a seed. And all of these promises that God has given have to do with a seed, but where is the seed? As for Sarai, her womb was closed up. She confesses that herself in verse 2. Behold now, the Lord 
hath restrained me from bearing, or the Lord has prevented me from bearing. Abram, I can't have children. And it had been ten years. That's a long time to wait. Ten years. A long time for any mother who longs to have a child but must wait year after year and there is no child. And now compounded with that is the fact that this is the child of promise, the seed of promise. Ten years. After each month, they, had, they came to the same conclusion, no seed yet. After each year, no seed yet. And that stood before them. The starkest fact of their existence was the fact that they did not have a seed. And it was evidently impossible for Abram and Sarai to have a seed. From a human perspective, it could not be done. Now all of those things weighed on Sarai. Think about Sarai going to sleep night after night with the, with this, the concern weighing upon her about the seed, about not having children year after year. And she became impatient. She longed for a seed, but now she does not wait upon the Lord, but she becomes impatient. And so she comes up with this plan. She had a handmaid whose name was Hagar, an Egyptian. Likely, Abram had picked up Hagar, the Egyptian, during his sojourn in Egypt some time ago. But so was she now, Hagar, or Sarai's handmaid. And because Hagar was Sarai's handmaid, this was her plan. I'll have children by my handmaid. I will, give, I will give Hagar to Abram to have seed by Hagar. And since Hagar is my handmaid, and I own her basically, the children that she bears will belong to me, and they will count as my children. And in that way, we will come up with a seed. Sarai brings the, the plan to Abram. One day, Abram says, sure. And sure enough, Sarai takes Hagar, gives him into Abram's bosom. We read in verse 5, Abram goes in unto Hagar, and Hagar conceives. And nine months later, she would have a child whose name was Ishmael. Now, what are we to make of this, of this plan What's our preliminary evaluation of this plan? On the one hand, Sarai and Abram had a sincere desire to, to have a, a seed of promise. They had a sincere, a sincere desire to see God's covenant promise realized. And in that respect, the desire to have the seed of promise, the desire to have God's covenant be realized was commendable. But, they were not trusting in the Lord with this plan. And that's the problem. They had been waiting patiently for ten years, and that waiting upon the Lord is exactly how God would have it. But now with this plan, they do not trust, but they lean upon themselves to make God's promise happen. They lean upon an arm of flesh. They resort to human effort and human plans to realize God's covenant promise. So even if there was some proper motivation here, the plan was amiss, and as a plan amiss, the results would be less than satisfactory, as Abram and Sarai would soon find out. But let's consider that more closely now. They were not trusting in the Lord in this plan. 
God had promised, God had made very clear, Abram, you will have a seed. God had made that promise so sure by passing through the pieces of the animals, there could be no doubt about it that Abram would have a seed. Not his servant, but a child who came from his own loins, from his own bowels. And Abram and Sarai had to have known that Sarai must be the mother. God would never have had Abram to bring in a third party into his marriage to defile the marriage bed in order to realize his promise. God would never have asked Abram to do something like that. Abram and Sarai had to have known Sarai must have been, she must be the mother. No matter how old she is, no matter how impossible from a human perspective. But they no longer are waiting. But now they are trying to realize God's promise another way through Sarai's handmaid, Hagar. It's a, it's a case of taking matters into one's own hand. It's a case of not leaving things in the realization of God's, of God's promises in his hands, but taking matters into one's own hands, trying to do it himself, impatience, distrust in God. That lack of trust here, this weakness of faith, which is essentially unbelief in God's promises, leads to sin and then more sin. And we'll see that especially in the second point. But another way that we see that this was not trusting in God is when we ask the question, where is God in this picture? Where is the asking of God's counsel here in verses 1 through 6? But you have no impression of Abram and Sarai having thoughts heavenward, but the impression that we're left with is Abram and Sarai only keeping their eyes on the ground, doing whatever they can to make this promise happen without looking and at that, in that God-word perspective. And that too will have application for us. They depart from God's word. Abram sleeps with a maid. That's not the way that God was going to realize his promise. It could not be that way. And yet, they try. Now the opposite of trusting in God is trusting in self. Or trusting in man, leaning upon an arm of flesh. And that's what this was, a carnal try to realize the promise. It was, you, it was trying to do it through human effort and human planning instead of waiting upon the realization of God's promise from God himself. In Romans 4 verse 5, the apostle says in the context of justification, he uses these profound words, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Why do we bring up Romans 4 verse 5? Because here in Genesis 16, you have Abram and Sarai not believing in God and trusting in his promise, but working to do it, working by human effort to realize the promised seed. Abram was a hero of faith. We've seen that. In Genesis 15, we see Abram believing. But now there is weakness of faith and he resorts to the arm of flesh. When you think about the magnitude of the promised seed, remember Isaac was not the ultimate fulfillment of the promised seed. But when God promised a seed to Abram, God was promising Christ, to Abram, God was promising salvation 
for all nations in Jesus Christ to Abram. So this plan here in Genesis 16 was like trying to bring about Christ by the will and the working of the flesh through human effort. And of course, already our, our instinct says, no, it cannot be that way, and it would not be that way. Now this would not be the first time in covenant history that God's people tried to help or assist God, cooperate with him, but with their own works for him to realize his promise. Think about Jacob. There you see a man scrambling back and forth, relying upon an arm of flesh, relying upon man to try to do and obtain what God freely promised. Jacob is another example. Rebecca, too, was, was party with that. But now these things in Genesis 16 are written for our admonition. We read those words in 1 Corinthians 10. These are written for our examples, written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world have come. And so what can we draw out of this history now here in the, fir- in the first point? In the first place, this. This is, a, this is clear teaching that even the believer is not immune from unbelief. That is, even the believer is not immune from distrusting God and in weakness of faith, trusting in someone or something other than God. Abram was the, is the father of believers. Abram is a hero of faith. Look at Hebrews 11. Look at the history we've already considered in this series. His name is synonymous with faith. When you hear Abram or Abraham, you say faith. There's a man who believed. And there's a man who obeyed by faith as well. If Abram was not immune from distrusting God, if Abram was not immune but was susceptible to weakness of faith, how much more his spiritual children as we are. And it is the struggle of faith, not just once and not just twice, but so often the struggle of faith to fight against unbelief. That's a war that will never finally end so long as we are alive on this earth. The struggle of faith here. But what we want to focus on especially is applying these things when it comes to the promise that God gives us. God promised Abram a seed, which ultimately was the promise of Christ, the promise of salvation. Now consider the promise of the gospel that God gives to us. Forgiveness of sins, justification, righteousness, acceptance with God, life everlasting. That, those two are promises. We go the Hagar route. We do what Abram and Sarai do here when we try to obtain what God freely promises by working instead of by faith freely receiving God's promises and God's blessings. Again, Romans 4, verse 5, the working, believing distinction. The promise of forgiveness is not something that we obtain by working, but it's something that can be received in no other way than by faith only, which rests in God's promise and receives God's promise. Now we say this because we have a natural propensity to work to realize that promise. Or perhaps better, we have a natural propensity to work to obtain by our own efforts what, in fact, God freely gives to everyone who believes. 
We look at ourselves, we see sin. We see ourselves being so far from the righteousness and the love that God requires in His Word. We see a pile of failures, a pile of weaknesses. Not just once, but throughout the week, we are met in the face with how far we are from the standard that God requires of us. But what's our next step? The natural inclination of the flesh is to work, to obtain what God freely promises. To work to be right with God. To, to get busy by the route of human effort. Somehow, some way, no matter how hard we try to find peace with God and to free our conscience from, from all guilt and all anxiety and worry as regards our standing before God. And so we say to ourselves, I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. If only I can be good enough, then all will be well between me and God. But you see what we're doing. We're going the Abram, Sarai, Hagar route, trying to work for that which can only be freely received by faith. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God says don't work. Believe only. Which is qualitative, qualitatively distinct from working to be right with God and to find acceptance and peace with him. Now what's the result of all of our efforts? What's the result of all of our working? What, what was the result of Abram and Sarai's plan? The text makes it very clear that it was a failure. There are problems on every side here in Genesis 16. Problems and more problems. And that's not a coincidence. Not just a coincidence that all of these things happened after Abram tried to execute this plan. But these problems are the just chastisement of God upon his people. He was teaching Abram and Sarai a hard lesson here by these chastisements. Let's consider then some of the results of this plan. In the first place, you have what we read in verse, verse 4. Here's the first problem. After Abram goes in into Hagar and she conceives, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. The idea there is that when Hagar realized she was pregnant, she began to look down upon Sarai, began to vaunt herself above Sarai in pride, considered Sarai to be beneath her. Sarai was despised in her eyes. Now, why would Hagar do that? What, what, gave, what was the occasion for this? Probably this. Hagar, pregnant Hagar now, had the one-up on barren Sarai. And she took advantage of that, took advantage of the opportunity presented her and vaunted herself above Sarai, and Sarai was despised in her eyes. Now, we have a sympathy with Hagar. We'll, we see that already in the rest of chapter 16. She's driven out of the home. But this was sin on Hagar's part. This was pride. This was not honoring authority. Remember that Hagar was Sarai's handmaid. It was wrong. So there's sin here. But this wasn't the only problem. Right after that, there are more problems. Sarai 
who could see the look in Hagar's eye and knew exactly what was happening. Sarai says to Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. So now we have marriage problems between Abram and his wife. The second time in covenant history where we have marriage problems. First Adam and Eve in the garden. Now in striking parallel, Abram and Sarai after this plan uh, was executed. Sarai here puts all the blame on Abram. Abram, it's your fault. What Sarai has done to me, I was despised in her eyes. Abram, it's your fault. Now we say, Sarai, what are you thinking? You are the one who came up with this plan. You are the one who asked Abram to go in unto your maid. How can it possibly be Abram's fault? There's problems here. Perhaps Sarai thought that Abram was somehow aiding or abetting Hagar. So she puts the blame on Abram. But the problems don't end there. There's more. And now we see how sin leads to more sin and ending up with a big mess. Abram says to Sarai in verse 6, Sarai, behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. Sarai, you take care of this. I wash my hands of the matter. Do whatever you want. Not the example of headship and leadership in the home that we might expect from Father Abraham. And Sarai, having been given license by Abram, now turns her rage against Hagar and deals hardly with her, we read in verse 6. When Sarai dealt hardly with her, she afflicted her handmaid. She oppressed her handmaid. Sarai made Hagar's life so miserable that Hagar fled away from her face and got out of there and headed back to her home in Egypt. We find her in the, on the way... Or we find her by the fountain near Shur in verse 7. And the way to Shur was the way back to Egypt. Step back now and consider. Hagar got roped into this in the first place by Sarai. And the very one who gets roped in, and we don't read of any kind of question whether or not Hagar would like to do this or if she's willing. Sarai simply takes her and gives her to Abram. And now... Hagar, who is roped in in the first place, is the one who is forced to flee away because of the oppression of her mistress, Sarai. Not good. And here there's a lesson for us. And the lesson is that distrust, not waiting upon the Lord, leads to sin. Sin leads to more sin. And sin has the potential to make a big mess of things damaging not just one, but so many different people. Sin leads to more sin. How often is that not true to experience? When someone departs away from the Word of God, takes that first step away from God's commandments, and goes his own way. And how often does not that way only go deeper and deeper until the man is left to say, how could I have possibly gotten here? How am I here in this pit? We also learn that sin has the devastating capacity to damage others. This was, a, this was a hurt here, and this was damage that was experienced not only by Abram, not only by Sarai, but by Hagar as well. 
And again, how often is that not true to experience? Think about sin in a marriage. And who often is the victim of that? Who often is hurt the most by the wicked sin between a husband and his wife? And it's the children who have no part in it and who have done no wrong. What a mess. And it's something that only God's grace can fix. That's the, we get to look forward to that. God's grace breaking through here at the end of chapter 16 when the angel of the Lord, none other but then the angel of the Lord steps in and visits Hagar, fleeing away from her mistress, comforts Hagar, though at the same time telling Hagar to go back to her mistress. So God's grace, which heals our diseases, which only can reconcile and bring about healing when we, by sin, make such a mess of things. The second lesson that we want to consider is this. When God is out of the picture in our lives, that is, when we neglect the Godward aspect to our existence, and our eyes are simply here below, and we're not looking to God, but we're relying upon ourselves, we, are, we become vulnerable to bad decisions. We become vulnerable to straying from God's way and bringing upon ourselves hurt. It's a recipe for trouble. So when God is out of the picture in our lives and we hardly think of him, it's no wonder that we scramble about doing this and doing that without any peace and without any uh, gladness, but instead anxiety and worry. Well, our eyes are only here below and we're not looking up unto God. And so we see here the importance of looking to God daily. Remembering God and having Him in the thoughts of our heart throughout our pilgrimage on this earth. And by God's grace, we are no longer as vulnerable to making bad decisions governed by the will of the flesh. But by God's grace, we become governed by God's Word and God's statutes that He lays out in His Word. Living close to the Word being constant and earnest in prayer. And again, Abram, we, we've saw, we saw that earlier. Abram building his altars. Abram calling upon the name of the Lord, worshiping God. But here we have a moment of weakness. We have distrust. And there are problems. But what about the seed? Remember, that was the driving motivation. Sarai and then Abram wanted a seed. Did it work? Did it not work? They had a seed now. A child would be born in nine months whose name would be Ishmael. Did not their carnal try to realize God's promise work? And it may be that for some time, Abram and Sarai thought that they had succeeded. They might have thought, we did it. Here's our seed. Here's the one in whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. But that would, that would only be an apparent success. It only apparently seemed to succeed. And the success was not actual. Because Ishmael was not the seed of promise. For the child of promise, Abram and Sarai would have to wait even more than ten years later. More hard waiting. More God teaching them, Sarai, Abram, only I can do this. Only I can bring about this seed. It's not up to you. It's not by your own working and your own human effort. 
we find the distinction between the sons of Abram in Galatians 4, verse 23, where the apostle calls Ishmael the child born after the flesh in contrast with Isaac, who would be born by promise. Now, Ishmael was born according to the flesh or after the flesh in two senses. In the first place, Ishmael was a child born like any other child. Now, not between Abram and his wife, but Abram and Hagar, but there was nothing extraordinary, nothing miraculous about Ishmael's birth. It was the ordinary operation, how things went. So it was after the flesh, whereas Isaac's would be miraculous and a wonder of grace. In the second place, Ishmael's birth was after the flesh because it was through Sarai and Abram's carnal plan and their arm of flesh that Ishmael was conceived and born. Not by God's grace, not through the promise, but this was something that happened by human effort and through the thinking and the will and the working of the flesh. Now, what's the result for us? Recall earlier we talked about when we try to work for what God freely promises and try to obtain in a carnal way forgiveness of sins, peace with God, acceptance with him, and assurance of his favor. Even as, Hagar, or even as Abram and Sarai's plan did not result in what they had intended and what they wanted, Neither does it work for us when we go about trying to work for that which God freely promises. On the one hand, we can't do it. No man, by working hard enough, could ever gain the kind of righteousness that he needs to stand before God's judgment seat. And one of the results when we try to do it ourselves is, A, we either think that we have it, and become satisfied with a shallow, superficial righteousness that is only outside and we deceive ourselves, or B, trying to establish our own righteousness, we despair and we realize that it's impossible. I cannot work nearly hard enough to do what I would have to do to find God's favor and to find God's peace. It doesn't only, not only is it the case that it does not work because we can't, But God simply has not designed it to happen that way. Just like God simply did not design Isaac to come by this kind of fleshly way according to the will and working of the flesh. Isaac could not be born that way. Because it must be grace. Because it must be be promise. It must be God's glory alone. And that's the lesson with regard to our own salvation and justification through faith alone. God designed it that way so that it might be all of grace and so that all the glory might go to God. And that's the great lesson here in Genesis 16. God's way versus man's way. And those two could not be farther apart. Suppose now in the case of Abram and Sarai, Suppose that they had succeeded. Suppose that by this plan through Hagar, they had brought about the promised seed. Well, then that seed would no longer have come freely as a free gift by the promise. But now that seed would have come about by the working and by the efforts of man. And it cannot be that way. 
suppose that they had succeeded, then Abram and Sherry would have had reason to boast. Man, in that case, would have been able to say, because of something I did, I realized God's promise. And it's all backwards then. That's not how it works. God must realize his promise, not man. And so it, couldn't, it simply could not be that way. The promised child, Isaac, and now look farther ahead to Christ, could not come about in this kind of way. For the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's grace. And that's what it must be. It must be sheer grace. That alone must explain the birth of Isaac. Sheer, miraculous, powerful grace. Isaac's birth must be a wonder of grace. And therefore, from a human perspective, it must be impossible. It must be impossible for man to do. Only God must do what needed to be done, namely the birth of the promised child. And so all human effort to realize, all, kinds of all kind of fleshly thinking, the kind of shenanigans going on in chapter 16, it, that, that all must be excluded. But God's grace must shine purely and alone in the event of Isaac's birth. And therefore, the promise must be realized through faith. Those two are very related. Romans 4, it is of faith that it might be by grace. God's promise must be realized through faith. And the reason for making that point is that in Hebrews 11, verse 11, we learn that some ten years now ahead, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. There's the antonym. There's the opposite of the Sarai that we read of in Genesis 16. Now in Hebrews 11, in the case of Isaac, you have Sarai believing God. And through faith, God realizes his promise. Sarah conceives strength, being nigh a hundred years old, to conceive seed. Faith, which trusts in God, which does not try to do things oneself, but rests in what God has promised to do by his grace. Faith, which renounces self-effort. Faith, which says, I can't, but recognizes and trusts that God can and that God will. There is Sarai's faith. And through faith, she receives strength to conceive seed. One of the glories of faith is that faith gives all of the glory to God. By faith means God alone. Through faith, Sarai received strength means that God brought about the birth of Isaac, in whom Sarai, God in whom Sarai believed. Faith and grace, because faith says, not because of me, but only because of God. And faith doesn't try to work for, but faith freely receives. And then faith and glory, because faith gives God all the glory for what he has done. It's a, it's a, a trinity of virtues, faith and grace and glory. They all go together. They're, they're so fit for each other, even as God himself appointed God must realize Isaac's birth, not man. Sarai, through faith, would receive strength to conceive seed.
And there are deep principles there that apply not only to the case of Isaac, but apply to the birth of Christ, apply to our salvation generally. Just like Isaac's birth must be a wonder of grace, so Christ's, the seed of promise, his birth, must be a wonder of grace in an even higher and in an even greater way. And Isaac's birth parallels Christ's birth, but Christ's birth goes so much farther. Not by the will or by the working of man. What did man do in the birth of Jesus Christ? What did man do to realize God's promise of the Messiah? Jesus Christ was conceived, how? By the Holy Ghost. Not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh. Jesus was born of whom? Of the Virgin Mary. A human impossibility. God did it because God always realizes his promises. So that in the birth of Christ, it's all of God. It's the wonder of wonders. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, conceived by God, born of the Virgin Mary. The cross of Christ was a wonder in that respect as well. What did man do at Jesus' cross? Man could do nothing. Fallen man could only look at Jesus Christ who hung on the cross to save us from our sins. There you see all of God and not of man. God must realize his promise. And God acted in the most powerful and in the highest way that is so beyond human imagination, that is so beyond a kind of carnal plan that man could devise. God's and God's throughout. And now with regard to the promise, the promise that we've considered already, the promise of forgiveness, justification, eternal life, not by working according to the flesh, not through human effort, not man realizing it himself, but we freely receiving it by faith. Salvation was designed that way, to be purely grace from beginning to end and not by the working of man. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. Because in the great work of salvation, God is after his glory in the first place. And so he saves us purely by his grace. And to that end, God ordained faith to be the means of our salvation. Faith to be the means whereby we receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of God. Because faith doesn't try to work for, but to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And therefore, let us not be going about trying to establish our own righteousness. What folly that is. God himself authored the righteousness in his Son, Jesus Christ. Let us not go about trying to do what God has already done. God says, do not work. Believe on him who is my righteousness and whom, whom, whom he freely gives. Why? So that God alone receives all of the glory. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word and for the Old Testament, which 
gives unto us so rich a teaching regarding thee, regarding thy church, regarding thy son Jesus Christ. We thank thee for thy word and bless us by it. Cause us to live by thy word and to look unto thee, the author and finisher of our salvation, the great God to whom be glory both now and forever. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us sing together Psalter number 155. One hundred fifty five, and we'll sing all the stanzas.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.